But we are going to continue our study of the uh, Gospel of John this morning. Before we do that, would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord God, as we now settle in for something different than what we have done, we are still yet worshiping. Now, Lord, we worship with our mind, and we worship with our heart. We worship with our ears. We worship with our faith. We worship with obedience. Lord, may your word work in all those ways. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. I think we would all agree that there are certain people in our life with whom it is unwise to tick them off, right? There are people in our life we really want to work at not making angry. Uh, for instance, like the people who work there, right? Or, or this guy. You don't want to make this guy mad, right? Or for some of us, it might be an in-law or an outlaw. Maybe it's your math teacher. Or maybe it's that neighbor. You know, that neighbor that you just don't want to tick off. This neighbor actually bought a tank and parked it in his driveway. That is someone you don't want to tick off. Well, what about this guy? Now, we think of Jesus as being loving and, and patient and tolerant. We think of Jesus as being just an all-around good guy, right? Just, just a good guy. Everyone wants to be with him. And yet, at one event, at one experience in Jesus' life, he is unmistakably angry, possibly furious. And that is when Jesus chased out of the temple area the money changers. There isn't a depiction of that event that doesn't show at least some sense of his displeasure, at least, to, if not incredible, anger. In fact, this artist, Lolo Guzman, uh, captured a ferocity, a ferociously angry Jesus who is far away from this other Jesus as you can get. I want to look at what caused Jesus' reaction this morning as we continue our series in the book of John. I want to invite you to open up your uh, Bibles or your Bible app or follow along on the screen to John chapter 2, verse 13, where we read this. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the, the Jewish leaders demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. 
After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need a person's testimony about people, for he knew what was in a person. And before we kind of look at the action of this event, I want to kind of give some general observations um, about this event in John's gospel. And the first thing to note is that John's gospel is not chronological. This event is, is recorded in two other gospels, in the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Mark. And in their gospels, this event comes at the end of Jesus' public ministry. During his last week of his life, as he makes his way into Jerusalem on that triumphant Sunday morning and then experiences the, the end of his earthly life, uh, this event happens there. John is not, he's not really caring about the sequence of events. He puts everything together topically. And this is about a sign. And so he puts all the sign events uh, he mentions signs some 18 times on the first 12 chapters. He's all about topics and putting things together. And think about what happened right before this. Last week, uh, Pastor Brian talked about Jesus being at the wedding at Cana, right? Great event. Lots of fun. Great thing that Jesus did, right? He, he, he made wine out of water. Not just wine, but really good wine. And, and everyone was happy and pleased. You have that juxtaposed to this. You have this hopeful event, this exciting event, this wonderful event, the promise of this next to Jesus being angry. John puts these things together for a reason, but it's not chronological. It's to give us a bigger picture and maybe a better picture of who Jesus is. I also want to note um, that the last verses, 23 through 25 of this chapter, really belong to chapter 3. We're not going to really touch on them this morning. We'll look at them next week. And uh, the reason for that is that um, the gospel writers didn't include chapters. They didn't break up their writing in chapters or in verses. That didn't occur until the late Middle Ages. In fact, really, it's two men in particular that created the division of chapters and the verses. And today, our, our modern Bibles follow that same pattern. Now, sometimes they got it wrong, I think. Sometimes I wouldn't have made that decision to put the chapter break there, um, but that's what we have. And then finally, it's Passover that sets all of this up. Passover sets all of this up. And just a side note here, do you know why we say Jesus had a three-year ministry or three-and-a-half years do you know why we say Jesus had a three to three and a half year public ministry? Uh, it's really owed to the Gospel of John. John records three distinct Passovers that Jesus participated in. That's why, how we know that Jesus' public ministry lasted only three to three and a half years. Passover, uh, what is it? As most of you know, it's an annual um, commemoration that all Jews participated in and still do today, commemorating and remembering that God saved the Hebrew people not only from slavery, 
But Passover in particular remembers that God saved them from death. On that night in which death visited the Egyptian people, God ordered the Hebrew slaves to make a sacrifice of a lamb and to take its blood and, and smear it over the doorposts and the lintels of the home so that death would literally pass over those homes. And so that festival, that commemoration of Passover, uh, is celebrated every year. And it was an obligation of Jewish males to attend Passover in Jerusalem at the temple if they were physically able to. Now, the population of Jerusalem is hotly debated. First century population of Jerusalem is hotly debated. Uh, I think a good answer somewhere around 100,000. 100,000 people lived in Jerusalem. But during Passover, you'd have two to three times as many people in that already crowded city so it's this crowd, this, this huge influx of people and this huge press into the temple that creates this event. So let me explain then um, about John's focus on the event itself. John has a unique focus, uh, a little bit different than the other gospel writers when it comes to what Jesus is doing. The first part of his focus is this charge that he makes about uh, making the Father's house into a market, making the Father's house into a market. Look at what Jesus says in verse 14. Now, this, the first words are really important. In the temple courts, okay? In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle. So where did he find men selling cattle? In the temple courts. You're not so good at that, but we'll work on that. All right. He found men selling cattle, sheep, doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. And so he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? So Jesus is in the temple courts as he drives people out, those sellers, and says to them, how dare you turn my father's house into a market. So to kind of understand um, what Jesus is saying and really kind of what he is pointing to, let's look at what the temple area looked like in the first century. This is an artist's rendering of the first century temple. Now the temple is really this building. That's the temple. That's specifically is the temple, when we talk about the temple, all right? It's that building, that building right there in the middle. All of this other area, we call the Temple Mount. It's the foundation of the temple, all right? It, it's all that, that supports that one building. And in fact, the, the footprint of the Temple Mount is gigantic. This is an aerial view of modern Jerusalem the old city of Jerusalem, and you can, see, you can see the Temple Mount. It's still very clearly discernible in the heart of, of Jerusalem today is this Temple Mount. Now, along the west side as well as the south side of the Temple Mount, at the very bottom are shops. Shops. Specialty shops. Very particular shops. And they're there 
to help people worship God correctly. All right? So, every Jew gave offerings in the temple. Every male Jew was required to pay an annual temple tax, right? And typically, they paid their temple tax at Passover while they were there uh, visiting for that event. The problem was that many, many Jews had Roman coins. You see the one on the left is a Roman coin. It has a picture on it, right? Well, no depictions of human beings were allowed anywhere near the temple because that was considered uh, a form of idolatry. And Roman coins uh, had a mixture of metals in them. They weren't pure. The temple offering had to be given as pure silver. And so only certain coins, those coins on the right, were allowed to be used as your offering or your temple tax. And so you had to exchange your money. Otherwise, you couldn't go up onto the temple. And so they would exchange their money in one of those shops, right? Let's say you're making a sacrifice. You have sinned in some way, um, and you know what you've done wrong. You have to find an animal in which to be sacrificed in the correct and right way. But that animal has to be without blemish. So you're not going to carry your animal from Galilee to Jerusalem because you're not sure if it would be accepted at the temple. You have to find an animal that's been accepted by the priests able to be sacrificed. Where do you find that animal? in one of the temple shops, okay? So those shops were important for the operation of the temple. Here's the problem. The population of Jerusalem during Passover swelled two to three times its size. Those shops could not handle the amount of people there. There was just no way. The streets were too narrow. There wasn't enough room. It would have impacted the area. They would never have been able to get up to the temple because there'd be so many people blocking the way to the temple. And so the Temple leadership allowed the sellers to move their shops to this area. It's called the Royal Porch or the Stoa. And it's there they were allowed to set up tables because it was convenient. It made it easier for people to exchange money and to purchase an animal for sacrifice. This is where Jesus is when he chases them out, all right? Now, remember it said, in the temple courts. Let's look at the temple from the perspective of courts. There are five courts in the temple, all right? The first court was called the court of the Gentiles. Any non-Jew was allowed in this area. Any non-Jew could go up to the temple mount and see the temple at a distance, but you could not approach any closer than this to the temple. There were warnings and there were guards. Any Gentile could come up here to pray and to worship and to acknowledge God the Father, right? Court of the Gentiles. The closer you get to the inner courts, the closer you get to the temple itself, the more restrictive entrance becomes. The next court is called the Court of Women, the Court of Women. It was as far as a Jewish woman could go to the temple. This is as close to the temple a Jewish woman could go. The next court is called the court of the Israelites, or more accurately, it's the court of men. Only this is as far as Jewish men could go toward the temple. The next court is called the court of priests. That was as far as the priests could go in the temple area. And then the very heart of the temple, the real reason for God's people to be there 
is the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest, once a year, was allowed into the Holy of Holies, where he would make amends, he would make a sacrifice for the people and for all of Israel. So you got five courts. Jesus is standing in the court of the Gentiles, and he says, he's not in the temple, he's in the court of the Gentiles, and he's angry at them for making the Father's what? house a market he's not in the temple he's in the temple court but this is where gentiles have access to the father what jesus is saying is you are encroaching upon that place that you have in some ways banished gentiles to and then you've taken away their space. The, the market would have stretched out into the court of the Gentiles. And there's no way that the court of the women would have tolerated this. No way that the priests would have tolerated this in their courts. No way would this have been tolerated by the Jewish people to see marketplace uh, sellers in their courts, but they allowed it in the court of the Gentiles. And the interesting thing is that God did not create any of those courts except one. The only court God created is the Holy of Holies. Jesus is angry that they are taking away from people who authentically want to know God, who are searching and seeking. And they've done that out of convenience for themselves. They haven't troubled themselves, right? They haven't made a market of the court of the women or the court of the Israelites or the court of the priests. No, they've done that to the Gentiles. Jesus says, this is my father's house. This is my father's house, and look what you've done to it. But even more so, John goes on to focus on something Jesus says that changes what my father's house means. The Jews demanded of Jesus this. The Jewish leader said, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jewish leaders replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? Now, can you understand their perplexity? It's like someone said to you, what's, uh, what's two plus two? Your answer is blue. What? What? What authority do you have to chase out all of these sellers that are providing a convenient service to us Jewish people? What authority do you have to do that? Raise this temple and I will raise it in three days. Wait, what are you talking about? Now, the good thing is John helps us understand this. He understands that it would be confusing to the reader, uh, Jesus' answer would be. He says, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. They believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Jesus is referring to his own body. He's talking about his body being raised, destroyed, put in the ground, buried dead, and raised again in three days. So in other words, Jesus is saying this new temple the temple that God wants for all people will be my body. And it's through me all people will be welcomed to the Father. 
There'll be no barrier to Gentile, to the Jew, to women, to men, to priests or non-priests. I'm the new temple of God. And no one, no one will be barred. All will be welcomed. And I will open the holy of holies to all people. Not just to one. Not just to a special one. To all people. I have come to be the Passover of the world. John wants us to understand that. And the joy of the wedding feast in Cana is all dependent on this, that Jesus will become our temple, the way to the Father and into the Holy of Holies. But the other thing that John wants us to focus on, and he's intentionally doing this, is the shock and awe of what Jesus does. It's the shock and awe of what Jesus does. Not only is in juxtaposition of the wedding feast, but John's is the only record of the event that has Jesus putting together a whip to move the animals out. But my guess would be that it's also intimidating to anyone who would try to stop him, right? Right? It would be intimidating. It would have been shocking. It would have been unsettling. And it would have stopped the disciples of Jesus in their track and made them think, who is this? Holy cow. Well, no pun there, but (laughs) holy oxen. I mean, they would have looked at Jesus and thought, whoa, after three years, I thought I knew you. Jesus' response, his his anger, uh, would have been shocking to them, unsettling to them. It might have unnerved them to think, maybe I don't know you. Maybe I don't know you. And, and maybe this artist, Lolo Guzman, had it more accurate than the others. Maybe that intense ferocity of Jesus is really what he was like. And I think we struggle with that because we want to make Jesus likable. Right? We want everybody to like Jesus. But I think in doing that, we have also tamed him. In fact, Dorothy Sayers, British author, chastised us for doing just that. She wrote this. She said, the people who hanged Christ never to do them justice accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have very effectively paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. Ouch. Ouch. But we've done that. John wants us to be shocked by what Jesus did. John wants us to think, could Jesus be angry 
with us? Could he? Think about it. How many churches today have turned inward? How many churches today have have made church about them? About what's comfortable for them? What's convenient for them? How many churches have forgot their mission and just made it a fellowship? A place for like-minded people to gather, to be cheered and encouraged every now and then to have their hands slapped a little bit and to go off happy. How many churches have made worship and, and changed it from this passionate, authentic encounter with the living God into entertainment? So that we leave here saying, well, you know, I really didn't like that song or this song. I wish they had done this or that. Or was it too loud or it's too this? Or, or we need entertainers to, to draw us in to the church. How many churches have done that? How many churches have taken Jesus and, and, and said, oh, he doesn't care. He doesn't care about what you do. He doesn't care what you think. He doesn't care about your theology. He's just a good guy. He's just one of many good guys. You don't think that ticks Jesus off? You don't think that angers him? You don't think that infuriates him? When his church acts like that, if you think Jesus is sitting back saying, oh, that's fun, that's great, you don't know Jesus. That's what John is saying here. Now, I think a better question to ask, honestly, and this is, this is how I approach Jesus. I don't want to know if Jesus is angry at me. I, I don't ask that question. What I ask is, are you pleased? And I, I honestly think for us as his children, that's a better question. He loves his children. He loves you. And a better question to ask him is not are you angry, but are you pleased? That's what we're going for. And we have to ask Jesus that question as a church. Are you pleased with what we do, with our faith, with our mission, with our worship, with our prayers, with our, with our theology? Are you pleased with how we reach out to others? And I think you also have, along with that, more personally, am I? Am I pleasing Jesus? There's only two people that can answer that. Jesus and you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may our answer match yours. And we pray the answer is yes. We will do all we can to make it a yes. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, amen.